Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, roads and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. Like you, I was part of teams that Googling how to Jim Collins or how to good to great. And we couldn't find things. So we said, we've got to start working on this ourselves. And so we developed some techniques on how do you cultivate level five leadership? And what was remarkable was that as we practiced it, when we got traction in looking in the mirror and emulating the level five leadership qualities, things like leading with questions, not answers, When you do those things and you have the right people in the right roles, there's this magic that happens. Everybody feels it, notices it. And then, you know, their business results come along and you can get to this ferocious sort of flywheel kind of business result. It's it's a very, very real thing. This is Dave Oakley. He is the CEO of Docking, a consultancy business that helps leaders create high performance cultures with their unique approach called Lead Different. This approach is inspired by leadership guru Jim Collins' work, who is the author of Good to Great and many other bestsellers. And if you've listened to the podcast show before, you might also pick up that I'm also a huge fan of Jim Collins' work. And to ensure the best possible value for you as a listener, Dave and I carefully selected a focus area for this conversation so we can give you the best possible insights and learnings. We landed on the well-known concept for Jim's famous book, Good to Great, First Who, Then What. And in this episode, you will be learning all about the importance of selecting and building the best team before you start to focusing on where you're going, because the right team can take you anywhere you want. We start the conversation by discussing the ideas behind the concept, First Who, Then What. We touch on the boss analogy, how leaders can put the who question first before the how, how to get the right people on the bus, your team, getting them in the right seats, the role, and also how you get, more importantly, the wrong people off the bus. Dave shares some real life examples of companies and leaders who excel getting this concept right and how they have developed a recruitment process that ensures that they hire the right people from the outset. He also shares some interesting stats on the return of investment, getting this right, and how your business performance can possibly be changed fast when you're focusing on first who, then what. Before you tune in, please sign up for our weekly newsletter packed with more Maverick insights, strategies, and tools. Find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. This episode will make you reflect on how you approach your ways of ensuring that you are bringing the right people to your team and putting them in the right roles. Enjoy. So 
Welcome to the new year. This is uh, the first recording in the new year. And what a, a subject we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about, you know, you heard him many times on the show, uh, Jim Collins, and probably a bit more than good to great, maybe his collective work over, I think it's more than three decades. And maybe Dave can help us as the guest on the show to get that clear in a moment. But we're going to be talking specific about people. Uh, because we had to make a choice. There's so much to talk about in the uh, the concept and uh, the disciplines or the principles around Jim Collins' amazing work that we thought we need to talk about the people a bit. And especially in these times where there's a lot of talk about, you know, you need to have a great vision. But a great vision is irrelevant without great people. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to be talking about how do you build a company full of great people. We're going to dive into... Uh, how you actually you manage and how you actually know when you have to shift from develop to replace people. Uh, we're also going to talk about where to start when you really want to grow your people in the right way to create, you know, some people call high performance employees or members of the team. And we're going to talking about uh, how you build culture as well, uh, where people depend on each other in principle and where they actually love to be together. And of course, then we're going to give some examples, but also give some practical advice about how to get started with all this first who, then what uh, concept from Jim Collins. With that said, uh, welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you, Michael. It's a great way to start off the new year for me as well. And I think you hit on so many important points with uh, the unprecedented demand that so many businesses are seeing today the idea of putting new questions first it seems like it gets shoved to the side even more. And, and yet it's the most important thing we can do as leaders is to put those who questions first. If we've learned nothing else from that entire body of work that Jim Collins uh, created and, and gave us to learn from, it's put who questions first. Yes, and that's what I really want to dive into today. And I actually agree with you 100% because you don't get this right. The rest of the concept really doesn't matter. And it, they are so closely linked to uh, the, the who part with uh, level five leadership, which we're probably going to touch a bit on as well today. But Dave, Dave who, who are you and what is your work and purpose in life? And, uh, and why did we actually connect? Oh, we connected through LinkedIn. And it's uh, because we share this sort of belief in how powerful culture is. And it really is the basis, if you want to have an, an outstanding organization, one that can achieve its full potential, you have to get the who questions on the front burner. And I began my own consulting practice about four years ago after a 30 plus year career of running organizations and taking underperforming uh, groups and literally applying these principles that Jim gave us from cultivating level five leadership to applying first two and confronting brutal facts. These are sort of the foundation for great performance, but you have to begin with the right who's, you know, it, if you read BE 2.0, uh, the epiphany that Jim shares is the metric above all. He said, if you're going to measure one single metric, it is the percent of seats that are occupied by the right people. And uh, I, I truly believe that, that that's really the basis. But more importantly is the definition of the right people. We'll get into that later. But my practice is based 
principally it's anchored on the work that Jim gave us, the principles that you can find in his body of work. It's a really one big body of work from built to last to good to great, great by choice, how the mighty fall and now BE 2.0 is sort of wrapping them all up. My practice is built specifically on teaching people how to make that actionable because Jim left behind a number of black boxes. There's no how to cultivate level five leadership. There's no how to first two. There's really nothing instructive in any of his works on how to get at the brutal facts and build a culture where people feel heard. So I'm the kind of person that wants to crack open those black boxes and help people put those into play while you're running a business so you can build something that will create distinctive, sustainable results where there's high levels of engagement. I want all stakeholders to win. It's sort of something I consider, Michael, pretty distinctive about how I approach my work with my clients. You know, a, a lot of organizations, they can get very focused on one of the stakeholders, whether it's the investors or the customers, but it's only truly special and sustainable when all stakeholders win, the investors, the customers, and the employees, since we're starting with first two, if they all see big wins, that's much harder to do. But in my experience, if we follow these practices that Jim observed in the good to great companies, we're able to achieve that. So that's what I help clients uh, work towards is that sort of result. It's so interesting, Dave, you talk about these black boxes in Jim Collins' uh, good to great book. Because I got the book in my hands in my I think I was about 22, 23 from Professor at my university, the course I was taking at night because I wanted to run a business that day. And um, I very quickly got promoted in that business. And, you know, I had a reasonably good take on people, but also did a lot of things. And he said, this book will change your thoughts and leadership. And I read that book. And from that day, I can't remember how many times I read that book, but I always felt, how do I do this? How do I actually implement this? So I took that business and got promoted within that business. And we tried to figure out, you know, what was our definition of first, who, then what was our level five leadership model look like? And of course, it took a very long time to implement it. But when we got it implemented, it worked because we had this, these concepts and philosophies we were building them on. But of course, we had to accept, which we found really hard in the beginning, because we were looking for people that could share how you did this. And we found out, we had to develop them ourselves and thereby they became unique when you talk about culture because the first phase of Jim Collins thing is this thing about people and that's where culture is developed and therefore you start a building a unique culture and that takes time and I think that was my a good learning early on in my career that culture is not something you do a workshop on or a, a way day and then that sorted it takes a long time and you need to you know in principle test things and fail with some of them as well. For sure. Yeah. It's, you know, this idea of buildup, you're, you know, if you think back again, the observation was the good to great companies, none of them could point back to this was the lightning strike moment, right? This was the moment where everything changed. And how many of, of us or our companies that we've been part of, were always looking for the right initiative the big change, right? We're gonna, oh, this is the, the strategic goal that we're gonna go after. It's gonna change everything for us. 
And if you, uh, you learn nothing else from good to great, that's not how it works. There's a process of building. And again, it, it, it's, there's not a prescription for how do you cultivate level five. I, like you, I was part of teams that we, we Googled, we wore out our fingers Googling how to Jim Collins or how to good to great. And we couldn't find things. So we said, we, we've got to, we've got to start working on this ourselves. And so we developed some techniques on how do you cultivate level five leadership? How do you do first two, especially we put a lot of time in that because that is everything and, and, and so on. And what was remarkable was that as we practiced it, we were able to really, when we got traction in looking in the mirror and, and emulating the level five leadership qualities, things like leading with questions, not answers, you know, fostering real active, vigorous debate, not debate to win or shutting down debate and dialogue, uh, autopsies without blame versus a culture that looks or dodges blame, right? When you do those things and you have the right people in the right roles, there's this magic that happens. Everybody feels it, notices it. And then, you know, their business results come along and you can get to this ferocious sort of flywheel kind of business result. It's, it's a very, very real thing. But, you know, like you were pointing out, so many people read a book like Good to Great and get excited about the concepts. They don't know how to start. They don't know how to get going. And that book gets back up on the bookshelf. And that's where I wanted to come in and go. There, it's so important, these principles, that we've got to try to unlock those black boxes and help people apply them. How does that come uh, about in your work, Dave, when you go into a company? Because it's it's a complex book in itself. Um, there is, uh, there is I can't remember how many concepts he's developed. I think it's nine or 12 concepts he has on his website. Good to Great in itself has six concepts it follows. Where do you normally start with a business? Because I guess they're reaching out to you saying that. We want to do something that's something not working. We want to work with you to to optimize our performance. Almost everybody, you know, I, I wish I had a, a long list of clients that were wanting to go from good to great. Usually the phone call comes in when we're in the bad. We have to go from bad to good. And, and what's handy about that is that the principles are, are the same. But it's such a great question as to where do you start? Because if if you even read the book, just sort of wrote, you would say, well, you first cultivate level five leadership, then you do first two, and then you confront brutal facts, like it's a series. And really when I come in, I help teach an executive team, a leadership team, the, the principles. And we focus a lot on buildup because if you don't have buildup right, there's no way to get to breakthrough. You know, and I've seen people start talking about hedgehog concepts or drawing a what flywheel, and they haven't even done level five leadership first two in confronting the brutal facts. And it, it is dangerous to do that because you'll be disappointed. And so I help clients begin to understand these principles and then look in the mirror for their own organization and see what is the, the, the areas that are holding us back. It might be a function that's holding us back. It might be part of the way we create value that is the constraint or holding us back, or maybe we have real brutal facts, real breaches of trust that are obvious to everybody, but they're, they're keeping us, they're putting too much friction in our way of executing or us getting things done. 
having walked into a an environment where there's major silos, right? You can imagine a lot of companies will fall into organizations will fall into where everybody operates in their own silos and it takes away the opportunity to have collective success. That might be the first place that we have to start punching those silos down. So how do we do that? So we create a focus on where are we going to apply first to demonstrate level five leadership and confront the brutal fact, right? And we, we create a, a very sharp focus more so than let's apply it everywhere. You can't do that, right? You have to create a major focus. And it's a little bit of, a, you know, every organization I walk into too, I would tell you that people will almost always say we take on too many things and we accomplish very little. And a very, very important first level five leadership test is can you create a do not do list? Can you shove all this other stuff aside and go, it may be important. It may have felt important. I may have told you it was a priority. We are going to focus on these one or two areas and really get gang tackling, collective effort, and we're going to show the power of getting everybody to work together. And that's usually how it starts. And it's remarkable what people will see how that kind of change and that kind of focus can start to show wow, if we really work together, what could we do, right? We get confidence and we get used to working across functions. But we also gain a real appreciation for how important it is to have the right person in every single role. And that that depends on more so than knowledge, skill, or experience. It depends upon the level of talent and the character that they bring. It's more about who they are than what they know. That's a, a major breakthrough that most leaders have to have. People will say, oh, of course I hire the right people, but you have to have the definition being that it's more about talent and character than it is knowledge, skill, or experience. Yeah, because you are, I think a lot of leaders talk about this as well, Dave, and that's definitely when I, when I work with people and especially when I work with um, newly, you know, uh, founded businesses where there's a founder with a great idea or vision, and they start and scale this business. Um, they 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 do it because they have that thing, this product, this uh, story, and they may be very good at marketing or very good at product, very technical things. And then they start selecting people in the same way they would, you know, really be excel at this skill. And that's where it starts to go wrong because they are suddenly they forget they are not just hiring people, they're building culture and they're building this flywheel momentum that can't really happen if you don't have the right people in the right seat. And there's nothing to do with skills, as you said. And that's so interesting. A lot of people think it's about hiring the right skills in in especially in a startup environment where the world is changing all the time. You had one priority this month, it's changed next month. There's something totally different we need to do now. It's much more about your your character and your ability to change. That's important. And your culture fit directly. You like to be with these people. So of course you want to change because you want them to be a success. Yeah, absolutely. It, I, it's easy and it's important for any business to have a value proposition that makes sense, right? So I, it, it's understandable that we have to pay attention to the what stuff. It's not that it's trivial, but to your point, you can create the most magical idea. And if all you do is try to scale it up and you don't get very, very serious about getting the right people in the right seats, that's you'll reach a tipping point 
where you might have all the success in get, gathering interest or demand uh, on, on your idea or your product. And you'll find that you have to manage everybody tightly. If you haven't been, remember the right people don't have to be managed tightly. As soon as you have to manage somebody very, very closely, then you've made a people mistake. And if we don't give that thought as we're adding people or scaling, right, then, then we run to this point where all of a sudden now the organization is so unwieldy that the entrepreneur falls into the trap where they're so used to making all the decisions, being involved in everything. And if you try to scale that with, with just people who are basically resources, they're, you know, they're, they're people that have knowledge, skill, or experience, or who you can hire to scale on some frozen timeline, then you're going to find grow up and find you have an organization that's impossible to steer. It's not fast. It's slow. It requires processes and bureaucracy. And that's the last thing in the world that any organization wants to be to excel, right? We, none of us want to be part of a bureaucratic organization. Freedom and responsibility, right? That's, that's what we want. Netflix, you talk about growing, being able to change and scale. They talk about this and they treat culture very, very uh, seriously. You know, their culture deck is online. You can read it. And they're so particular about people. They want freedom and responsibility and they want to have minimal process. So they understand that idea that if we catch fire with an idea, if we want to grow and, and have a, an organization that will attract the right people, right? It has to have freedom and responsibility. And you can't do that unless you have the right people. And, and, uh, and it's so interesting you, you just bring this up, Dave, because also we, we live in at a time when, you know, I, I guess we're still in some kind in the storm of the pandemic where there's so much disruption that's been thrown at us. And it's going to be so interesting when you can see the companies either starting out in this environment or coming out on the other side. They probably got this right very well. I'm talking about the company that really outperformed because they had the right people on board that just made the changes that need to be done. But also they didn't really need to put rules in place because these people just in a way operate with permission to operate in a way. Uh, and I think also that's interesting compared to what's happened with you know the expectation to work now that these type of companies don't even think about are we a top-down company or are we a bottom-up company or... How do we have freedom to operate? That's how they do things. It's so natural in their DNA. Uh, and they don't need to manage people, as you say. And it's so interesting that this whole conversation now about how to fix work that's broken. Maybe we actually need to go back and fix the way we actually put groups of people together because that's actually where it goes wrong. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, I think that the the pandemic and everything that's come about is really a pressure test for how well you have done in putting who first have you created this kind of culture that will retain people when the organization gets stressed right we're seeing now that talent has the upper hand in the mark in, in the market for talent right uh, there's a the great resignation or the great reconsideration whatever you want to call it and the companies that have created the environment where there's freedom and responsibility organic engagement because they have they've put the right people in the right seats they have driven authority and accountability to the the lowest levels where people can feel like they're using their talents to make a difference they're not being managed tightly and they love the work they're doing including the fact that it's very very difficult those companies will be more nimble to get through something like this 
And in the war for talent, they're going to get preferential treatment in terms of people want to go there. And uh, one of the things I hear leaders talk about, I think this is really, really critical, is we see a lot of companies with unprecedented demand, and they want to chase that demand. We have to capture it, Dave. There's, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I warn them that if you don't pay attention to Packard's law, right, if, if you don't grow at the rate that you can attract and assimilate the right people, if you start diluting, even if you have a great company now and you have the right people, and you go on this demand chase and you start watering it down with just people that are available, before you know it, you'll reach this tipping point where you have this unprecedented demand. You're going to ha have a company that requires a lot more intervention or management. It's unwieldy. It's slower. And you're going to risk regrettable turnover. Nothing will will uh, demotivate the right people more than you saddling them with people that are in either the wrong people or by putting the wrong people in the wrong seats and having a lot of miscasting. You know, your, your, your top talent's going to go, oh my gosh, this is not the environment that I love to work in. And you're going to see regrettable turnover. And, and so I think those are really, really big risks that are coming about uh, in the pandemic. And if, if you've gotten to that point, it means right now you've got to start and get get to work on putting those who questions first again. And it's, it's so interesting you, you take that uh, angle on as well, because one of the things I've observed as well, um, especially in, in the hospitality area, where is that, where there's this, again, this innate focusing on, as you say, there's this opportunity to once in a lifetime, we just have to grow for the sake of it. And they haven't really defined what growth means to them. What is good growth? Good growth both for shareholders, employees, customers, whoever that's involved in this organization. And what does it mean when we pursue this growth? And how do we actually make sure we actually get the right people in the right seat to make that happen? Or actually, is this opportunity also in two years' time when we are ready? Are we going to be more ready to really to, to take this opportunity? Because again, it becomes about that thing instead of, you know, what consequences does this have? And and you can see that why you can see companies that's really good to great companies, they survive for decades with solid returns. And what we see often today is, you know, even, you know, really well-established companies going up and down in their performance and, and suddenly they die, they disappear because they are hunting this incredible growth factor. And you can see that, again, if you don't have the right mindset or idea about what growth means to you and your culture, it's really going to impact the quality of the people you're going to have because the right people will not participate in that because it comes back to all the obvious things. They want a life outside work. They don't want stress. They want to feel the flywheel effect. We all want to feel that flywheel effect in our, our life. But if we, we should go into the conversation, Dave, and talk a bit about how do we actually get a return on the who, the right people? How do we actually get this right in a way? And because uh, there's a number of things you need to get right as the leader here to, to make that happen. Yeah, I, I would tell you that return on who is sort of a concept that is in development. You won't find it in any of Colin's work. It's something that I've introduced uh, to the people that I work with, my clients. It really resonates with people who grasp this idea of first who. And return on who is is about putting that emphasis and showing a leader, what is the payback for investing the time in getting this right? What is 
the return on being able to emulate level five behaviors, really look in the mirror and change the way I'm approaching the, the role of a leader to become more of a catalyst than a commander, right? And to then sweat, how do I have to learn how to get the right people in the right seats and get the wrong people off the bus, right? That's a lot of work. And so we, we have to say, what's the benefit of all that? And then open ourselves up to having candid discussions about the brutal facts. And for me, it's really interesting that this isn't described in any of the of Colin's work. When you get the level of fit and performance to very, very high levels, and you drive authority to act, you create freedom and responsibility for people, and you confront the brutal facts, you know, all of a sudden now there's this cultural feeling. You can do this by focusing, like I said, on just a few key areas. People begin to feel this amazing sense that something's different in the culture, right? That the, the organization is faster. It doesn't require a bureaucracy. There's a higher quality of solution, right? That takes place because the people closest to the work are getting things done. Leaders are being supportive. And for an individual to see individual and collective success, right? That creates engagement. Nothing could ex excite any of the right people more than to say, I bring my daily best every day and I'm making a huge difference. I'm part of something that's successful. That feeling, as you're starting to stack up business results, whether you're you know, addressing things that have gone wrong or starting on a path from good to great, there's this cultural flywheel that you don't hear Collins or anybody talk about. It's unmistakable in the, the transformations I've been part of. People that interact with an organization will come in and go, something's different. I can't put my finger on it. And it's this karma that people will, instead of going, oh my gosh, I don't have enough time at work, they go, oh my gosh, I don't have enough time at work. They're, they're excited and naturally engaged. You don't need an engagement program. You need to stop disengaging people. And these activities will get us to that point where you feel that cultural flywheel. It's an amazing thing. It's really the role of leader to become this catalyst to create the conditions for this kind of success. It's so interesting as well as uh, as you talk about that. I was thinking about you know um, a success I had myself was not about an engagement program. It was actually getting the things fixed that makes people's job done. You know the the resources or a broken coffee machine or whatever it was that really bothered them. Some that brought negativity because in a way the flywheel effect you talk about the cultural is is actually removing negativity from the dialogue at work. And it's your job as the leaders to set the table, as Danny Meyer says from uh, Union Square Hospitality. You set the table. You set the standards. And if the basic standards or the foundation is not in place, things are not working, that's where you start. And then you start feeling that momentum, the cultural flywheel momentum, as you call it. But uh, I would love to hear, we talked a bit about before, Dave, as well, but this is also the return on who, you know, sometimes, you know, I've done it myself. I'm in part of an organization where you either hire the person or somebody they're sitting on the seat, especially leadership uh, seats, you know. And um, this this person is uh, having an impact on the organization. And suddenly, there you see people leave as well. The right people. Some of the people you really thought as I call them always culture carrier. They are really foundational for your organization. They are part of that. 10, 20% that really impacts the, the outcome of the organization. What is happening there, you know, when you begin to lose these people and 
you keep another person because they create some results. They suddenly they have some kind of importance. They are history or whatever it is. Yeah, it's it's what you're describing is somebody who's miscast that's among the troops. Somebody you know when when we get very very disciplined about understanding who the right people are and putting who first. Uh, you know, nobody gets that 100% right, I, I will tell you this. But in my experience, the, the, the batting average goes up from most people get it right about 35 to 40% of the time. I, I see that much miscasting in the world today. And the miscasting is either the, uh, the right person in the wrong seat or the wrong person in the or on the bus. Those are two forms of miscast, both of which have to be dealt with very urgently for, for different reasons, but they both have this negative effect that you're describing. If you have a miscast that's the right person in the wrong seat, you know, we often look past that and think, oh, it's they're a nice person, they're trying really hard, you know, but deep inside they're not successful. A miscast doesn't have the ability to excel. And they they use, seldom raise their hand and say, wait, I'm in the wrong job, right? We we might have put them in that job. But there's a lot of anxiety when you're in a job that feels like you're putting in four times the effort to get a modest result. And so the first thing I teach leaders is you're not doing that person a favor if it's the right person. Get them in the right seat if you can, right? Sometimes there may not be that seat and we may have to part ways. The more dangerous one is the one you described before. And this can be an individual contributor or heaven help us if it's a leader, somebody who produces outstanding results but they're either toxic to our culture or they're sort of the antichrist of a core value. And it's a real moment of truth for a leader to go, oh my gosh, this person generates amazing results. And you want me to confront that? Absolutely. If you don't confront that behavior, you're telling the rest of the organization that it's okay to behave in a, in a bad way, that your culture is optional. And the turnover you describe is one of the symptoms. When you start seeing regrettable turnover, your best leaving, and especially if they all circle around, you have a manager that is is a, is a common link or a, a peer, you, you really need to be very, very in tune. That's about taking that data that I talked about. You don't want to have turnover be, that's a, such a trailing indicator of your talent. You want to be taking data on how well people are working together and how somebody's getting results. And you can't look the other way if some if they're your best performer and they are killing it or miles above anybody else. But if they're dangerous to your culture, you've got to hit it head on. And and maybe it's going to be an epiphany. Maybe if you give, you know, you give me the right kind of talk, Michael, you sit down and, and tell Dave, Dave, do you have any idea what your behavior does to the team? Maybe nobody's ever confronted me with that. Maybe you can take this sort of dilemma high per performer and turning them around because I've never even been given that feedback. But often, right, that person can't change. It's about who they are. And uh, I like to borrow a phrase that I've heard from the folks at WD-40. When you run into that situation, share that person with the competition, right? That person needs to get off the bus because they're going to send a lot of right people off the bus and you're going to be stuck in a situation where you cannot perform and you're starting over. And I guess also when you, you have these situations where, where people don't perform, and I, I've seen it before where you had somebody that's performed really well in a job and then they 
because they want to be promoted and that's the ambition and they get promoted into a job and then it doesn't work. And then you keep on working on them in that job instead of very quickly acknowledging before they lose their confidence, we need to either move them back uh, because this is somebody that's been with us for, for 15 years in this example I've seen. And uh, he's always been very consistent in his performance, but now he's not working, but we just need to get him work or else he can't be promoted again to the next level. And it's just, it's crazy when you start doing that because it's all about confidence and you can lose that very quickly as an individual when you're in the wrong job. I think everybody that's listening in here and you probably like me, Dave, been in those jobs where you took on a challenge, but it was so far away from where you should be because there was so many circumstances that you would never have at that point of time performing that job. Yeah, I yeah, I would tell you that it's one of the reasons that casting, like we talked about, really understanding the talent that's required to excel at every role is so important. So promotions aren't simply the next rung on the ladder. You always have to consider the fit. And that's for your internal superstars. The worst thing you can do is take somebody who's a high potential in one role and then miscast them thinking you're doing a good thing. It, it's, it's really important that for a high potential that you can have that honest conversation and say, Dave, you know, I, I know the next rung on the ladder looks like a, a supervisor or a manager's job, but here are the reasons why we don't think that's a good fit. But can you offer me another way to promote and still leverage my strengths, not put me in a role where I have to have an out-of-body experience? If I'm the best engineer and I'm, I don't have people skills and you promote me to the engineering manager because that's the next thing, that's the next box, you've done everybody a disservice. It's lose, lose, lose. You're going to spend all your time trying to manage me to do things right. My team is going to be discouraged. And quite frankly, if I'm even at all self-aware, I'm going to learn very quickly. Oh my gosh, this stuff's way harder than I ever thought. And it's not the stuff that I'm very good at. I'm going to have anxiety about it. Right. So it tends to be lose, lose, lose when you have somebody in a miscast. And in the worst position you can put a miscast is in leadership role because leaders are either multipliers or they're dividers. And somebody who's a miscast leader, right? I've heard people almost feel like they've had good fortune in that so-and-so is not a very good manager, but at least they've got a great team. I said, that's not lucky at all. That's that's terrible to saddle a group of high performers with a me too or an okay leader. You really want want to give your best performers every advantage to grow and learn. So you want your best team to have the best leader. It's, uh, it's not that, oh, I can get by with that situation. That is not first two thinking whatsoever. If um, I'm sitting and listening to this, I'm, I'm leading an organization. I know that we need to change something. There's something not feeling right. I can, I, that cultural flywheel, we definitely don't have that as I'm listening to that. So wh- where should I start? How do I know that, you know, I have the right people or the wrong people on the boss? Is there any questions I can ask myself? Well, the, the way that we, we've created how to first two is, is we've used uh, a nine box as sort of a palette. It's a nine box that you would see in succession planning uh, in, in many large companies, but we adapt it because we apply this nine box to each and every role. And we go through a process called define a role, define a talent. And so you take role by role, because 
the the fit for exceptional performance is very role specific and it's a mistake to assume that any role doesn't benefit from high levels of fit so if you look at one of these nine boxes in the upper right corner there's a the, the high performance and the high potential that's the highest fit that's olympic caliber those are our hypos and when we look at a role we go who are the best people we've ever seen in that role and we get very very clear on what is exceptional consistent exceptional performance and outcomes by a high potential in this role and then to get at the talent because you know we could try to study talents and go is it woo is it you know curiosity is it these things that's very very difficult to do we go what are the enabling behaviors that lead to those great performances? Because those are the clues to talent. So we start to describe what are the enabling behaviors that the best of the best do. And we start to get a very, very clear picture of what an exceptional fit looks like in the form of a person. Or it could be, hey, if we took half of Dave and half of Michael, that would be the, the, the best you know, manager we could ever see. And that becomes the, how we pin the talent for that role is. We, we flip it around and go, who are the people that have gotten into those roles where we've seen it a, a struggle, where they're really miscast? And we go, what are the things that they do where they, they fall short on the results and outcomes? And what are the limiting behaviors that they have? And we then gear the whole casting process more around the talents and the characters that, that come out of that discussion, the, the knowledge, skill, and experience that becomes a really smaller and secondary part of the interviewing and evaluation process. It's like 20% is knowledge, skill, or experience. Think about how many people put knowledge, skill, or experience on the front burner. That stuff is so much easier to evaluate. You can do it very quickly. You do it in a sort of separate evaluation. You don't mangle the two. And then 80% of your time is getting to know, is, is Dave the right kind of person? Does he really have what it takes to naturally be gifted at this kind of role. And, and so the whole hiring process becomes uh, changed. The recruiting process, how do we grow somebody to be a high, that's a high potential? What are the innate character traits that, that are responsible for success there? And you can find some people who come from very non-traditional backgrounds because they just have the latent talent that we could develop into a superstar. Those are called diamonds in the rough. All of a sudden you find somebody and you put them in a role that well, they're really not credentialed to do that, and they're but they're they're like Picasso. They're thriving to go, wow, how did you ever find so-and-so? It's like, well, he's been in the organization for nine years, but nobody looked for the talent to slot that person in that role and then cultivate their performance. And before you know it, they're just taking off and, and really redefining the role in many ways. Yeah, because often we make, you know, that applying or learning a new skill much harder than it is for people. Because as soon as they see a purpose with learning that skill, they're going to close that gap really fast because they're going to be working on it 40 hours a week or more. So therefore, they will catch up very quickly. They already know, as you say, they are right fit, they're the right person for the job. One of the interesting things we, we learned or we did as we, we, we took over a, an area of a business where we had to do a turnaround and... Uh, I went in with the leadership team and I we had all the names of the team. And then I wrote the question, how would you feel if any of these people would quit today? And we went through them one by one. And I just looked at them, how they reacted. And though some of them, they were very obvious. They would be quite, you know, released if they quit today. And others, they were in absolutely panic if they, they quit today. 
And that was our way of starting the conversation about getting data points of the, the wrong people and the right people and how we dealt with that situation because the problem was the 60% on that list was not the right people after that first meeting. So either we need to minimize those people by putting them in the right seats or doing something about that situation or we needed to get rid of them. And that was the job the first three months. And it worked because in a way we, and it is a brutal to put people's names up like that, but you need to do that to make that cultural shift. You need to ask that brutal question. Absolutely. And, and by virtue of what you're doing there, you're what we call reshaping the organization. When you do that, all of a sudden now your hypos, if you've had any on board, if you're lucky enough to have a group with hypos that have had peers who are not exceptional in a role, if you haven't had good fit, if you've got a lot of miscasting, all of a sudden, when you start to raise the level of the talent around hypos, you know, they start taking off. They start to, to build off one another. And you can get a really, really synergistic reaction by most, most people that have gone through a cycle of reshaping the organization and done their nine box. A year later, when they go back and revisit their nine box and they've put new stronger players on there they revisit where they rank people and they find that the, the bar has been raised by surely the fact that there's a much co more concentrated level of talent and the role starts to grow and we appreciate what real talent can do you mentioned uh training as being one of the things and there, there are clues to talent that are really really important and the, the ability to retain with near perfection, almost instantly, any training. I, I find this on frontline jobs that people go, oh, our training is terrible. And, and when you dig a little deeper, you find out that, you know, some people come in with that same set of training and you can't even teach them fast enough. They just learn and they grow and they go fast. Other people, you're training them the same things for 15 years and they're putting in all this effort. That's a miscast. I'm here to tell you, it's your training might not be all that bad. If it is, you should take care of that. But often I find people have invested so much time in training that they're trying to train anybody to do the job and it, it's it's a failure. You can't do it. Yeah. 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 I am I'm I'm smiling a lot because again, what kind of is this a skill problem? Is this a will problem or exactly a values problem you have? Absolutely. And that's the question to ask. Uh, one of the things I wanted before we I have a couple of other questions I wanted to 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 uh, have a conversation with you about. But I'll stay here with the who is because a lot of people right now are you know being thrown quite big packages, you know, salary insensitive against. And is that how you actually get more of the right people on board? You know, paying the right salary is that the most important bit of it all? Well, it's, it certainly is a, a piece of it. Uh, you know, compensation, uh, I, I have a unique view, and I, I'm around a lot of situations where people want to start putting incentive uh, compensation in place to go, oh, if we incentivize people, they'll perform better. And I'm, I'm like, the, the, the right people are self-motivated. You don't need, you know, compensation is merely what you need to attract and retain the right people. You have to pay a fair market value. If you don't have an exceptional uh, culture or one where there's freedom and responsibility, if you do things that are disengaging, like leading with answers and discouraging debate and dialogue or holding authority very high, right? A lot of things 
that we see people do or watering down your talent and making people, you know, work extra hard. There's not a check you can write that's big enough. Your, your talent will go, that's not engaging to me. It's, you know, it's not worth it. That's, they're not necessarily motivated surely by money. Some people are, but the right people tend to be more motivated uh, to, to make a difference. And you do need to pay a wage that's competitive, one that will retain them and keep them from being distracted. Uh, but the idea of using compensation to incentivize people into performance is very misguided uh, in, in my mind. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's it's also it's a race to the bottom for many because then, you know, you can't, you know, you, there's some people you can't compete with when it comes to that, especially maybe your competitors or other sectors. It's impossible to compete with that. So actually spend that money maybe on building the right culture with the right people instead. Um, what are some of the uh, the best practice companies you've seen that get this right? Maybe I say maybe it's, it's a bit crazy to say a hundred percent right because nobody gets anything hundred percent right. But close to they really have this cultural flywheel to get the who thing right. Is there any companies people could go out and look into? Because that's how I learned it myself. I looked a lot on Southwest Airlines was one of my case studies I used, and then I transformed their learnings from the airplane industry into the restaurant industry. Yeah, I, I would say Southwest is a good choice because they have that very distinctive culture. The kind of Pete you can imagine, it's it's very, very easy to engage with an employee of Southwest to take one of their flights and to get a sense of what they're about. You know, the, the humor that they use, you know, the way they approach their business, they don't charge for, you know, there's so many things that you can identify with and you can see that they, they're very careful with the who. Netflix is one I mentioned before. Because, again, they're very serious about this idea of freedom and responsibility. They know that if you have to start putting bureaucracy in place, the company becomes very disengaging and they don't like that. So it's an enormous company. So the idea that they're they're trying to get away from having, you know, too much process is very, very telling. Reed Hastings, the, the CEO of Netflix, talks about if he's making a lot of decisions personally, he starts to get nervous. He's like, what's going on where all these decisions are coming up to, to my level? Um, and, you know, that's it's a big epiphany for a lot of leaders is to go, I shouldn't be making all the decisions. A lot of leaders hold authority way too high. And he's very, very careful to go, if authority to act is proper, then a lot of people, really smart people closer to the point of attack should be doing that. So Netflix is one. Uh, I would tell you there's a company you might never have heard of called DPR Construction. Uh, they are based in the, the Bay Area of the United States in San Francisco. DP and R, the founders of DPR Construction, were actually students of Collins. And they, they, be, they almost became right out of their birth. Uh, his little laboratory is what he talks about. They're very, very uh, overt about their culture and about the idea of level five leadership. And they're a five to eight billion dollar company. They're not small at all, and they specialize in biotech. I've had a, the the good fortune of interacting with people from there and seeing their culture firsthand, and it's it's exceptional. Um, a really interesting one here in San Diego is WD forty. So WD forty, the oil in a can, right? Yeah, we all know that. We all know that one, and uh, you know, think about it. What could be more commodity than oil in a can, right? It's it 
it is not sexy. It's not like Apple, right? It's, it, it's not any of that sort of thing. And they've had great leadership at the top. Gary Ridge is their CEO. And they've had an exceptional chief uh, people person, Stan Seawick, and who's just recently left, but he's transitioned that. But they are known to have an exceptional culture, and they're based right here in San Diego. And uh, I would tell you, I think they follow the precepts very closely. A, a couple of my clients do it very, very well. I do it with a lot. Of, I actually do a lot of coaching with individual leaders. And so these same tactics, if you're just a leader and you, you don't want to wait for your CEO to figure it out, you know, this idea of creating a minibus of success is very, very real. And it's something that's really, really impactful uh, for your personal and professional growth. And it's very, very applicable. So I, I feel like sometimes people will say, oh, it'll never happen here unless our CEO has an epiphany. Well, that's not true. You can lead and create a minibus and create a lot of influence by creating a very distinct culture and, and the kind of results that we're talking about. And it's so interesting to say that, Dave, because when we try to to implement uh, this in the in the cafe chain I worked in, uh, the, the thinking from uh, Jim Collins was actually we focused on each location as a minibus instead of saying we this is something we're going to pull down on you. And we didn't even go out. We gave them the book, but then we actually found out where is the biggest gap and then we worked with that area of the book with them individually and it was bloody hard work but when you're starting seeing some of these mini bosses getting some momentum it becomes quite a powerful big boss you know or collectively boss in a way it becomes a bit like transformers when they all comes together to that that megatron as they call it um and that was how we saw it in a way it was easier to deal with sm lots of small bosses and get them working than it was trying to do this massive culture change project we tried the other way first but it didn't work we have to go out individually and work with this and especially the who bit was the big 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 part of it actually learning people how to in a way cast people recruit you know how to recruit we have a framework but how do you actually see all these invisible thing and actually spending time on this recruitment process because often was grabbing a piece of paper from a printer and then sitting making notes we had a very specific form people need to do not for the sake of the form but because it made them reflect over the right things before they hired them and there was a three-step process and at that time there was a lot there was a, we really needed people but we had to make it difficult to people to get on board because or else we'll just get anyone. And that was not good enough. I mean, but that's again, an example of, you know, really, really focusing on those small minibus and train them in specific things they need. Um, if we go a bit away from um, the who we talked a lot about the who and the people you have also, you know, worked with companies through this pandemic. What is most significant learning you've done Dave the last 18 months and, what did you learn from it? Uh, you know, I would tell you, I've uh, I've really relearned, and I, I remind myself of this often, is the power of focus. And, uh, you know, I mentioned before the do not do list. And it is one of the least appreciated, least used, most powerful weapons that a leader has. And I find myself having to do it to myself. So I started my firm about four years ago, and I had three areas that I thought were really uh, potentially great avenues to create value for clients. And I found after about a year and a half 
that here I am, I'm chasing three rabbits and I'm getting very tired and catching none of them. And I said, you know, I have to really create the focus and put some of my opportunity on the do not do list. Be that disciplined. Don't put any time on it and concentrate my effort on one that I can really, really make progress on and have impact. And I think that's such so important. If you were to err as a leader and you let's say you had the right people and you erred by not giving them enough to focus on, the right people are going to start, if they have discretionary time, they're gonna do great things. You have to trust that. So the idea that me as a leader, I have to keep your plate overflowed all the time, it's, it's really silly when you step back and go, wait a second, if I have the right people, I trust them with discretionary time to do great things. And that could be taking on another problem, it could be their own personal development, it could be things that you'd never even think to ask them to do. But focus them on a couple of things and imagine the gang tackling and the higher impact, the more force you put on a single point, the more difference you can make. And people love that. They love to make progress. They hate having too much to do and getting too little done. Yeah, and the powerful of the, the stop doing list, as I call it, you know, put things on your stop doing list. And you're right, not many do it. They put more on their to-do list. And I, I myself practice this is also that suddenly you create that time to think and make better decisions. Because often when we are busy, we just get busy with meetings, busy for the sake of it, busy because other people are busy with other people's meetings. And then suddenly you're just a busy fool and you don't have that clarity. You need to make these, you know, critical decisions about your business, your team, because you don't have the headspace and the energy. And I think the stop doing list is so powerful. And I would recommend people um, actually writing a piece on it that will go out soon on do this every year, every quarter, every month fill up, look at your stop doing list because there's something that can go on it every month even, uh, especially when you run a smaller business where you want to do so many things, but you only have that amount of time every day to do it. Um, so um, is there any people in, in your life that's been really influential to, you know, how it's impacted you, your whole journey around good to great, Jim Collins, um, who are the most influential people in your life, Dave? Well, I would tell you the, the biggest influence early in my life, and it, it, it lasts to today, was my high school Russian teacher. I went to a little public high school in Massachusetts, and we had an exceptional Russian language program. And our my, my teacher, Mr. Sullivan, he set extraordinarily high standards for people. He was very, very demanding, and yet he knew how to teach us individually to get us to reach our own potential. And he, he inspired us to do some things and to accomplish things that none of us probably thought was possible. And I really, I got that taste of how that success must have felt for him because he had students that went on to do just amazing things. And uh, he actually allowed me to teach with him uh, over a summer at a, a local college. And so I became very, very close to him. And to be honest with you, so much of what I've done in my life came out of lessons that he taught me that I've always had this imaginary debt in my mind that I have to work off. I'll never pay it off. And so I've often joked with people that I'm a teacher hiding out in real jobs. And I'm trying to work off that debt all the time to make that kind of difference because I know how gratifying that was for him and how many lives he impacted. So that's probably the biggest influence uh, that I could point back to. 
That, that's super, super, super interesting. And then often these, you know, touch point early in our life, especially when you're talking about setting standards and, you know, and showing that there is, you, you can do better in a way and getting that early on. I think a lot of people would not to that. Um, any books you recommend to, to the audience and why? Of course, good to great if we look past that. Uh, I've recommended that so many times. Is there any other books you would say <laughs> that people really need to read? Uh, so I would tell you it's that whole body of work, right? If I were to, to, if you look at that body of work that sort of came out of the one research from built to last, good to great, great by choice, how to mighty fall and beat you 2.0, there is really, really important principles in each of them. Probably one that is least referred to that has a lot of great stuff and is great by choice. That's where the 20 mile march comes from, the way to manage risk come, comes from. Uh, I, I think that one has the idea of graceful growth. We were touching on this earlier, uh, which is is another concept that I've introduced to clients that everybody just, it resonates with them. What's the difference between graceful growth and what we typically get caught into? Well, graceful growth is about following Packard's law, right? Not growing faster than you can attract and assimilate the right people and putting it on a 20 mile march and not having these gorges where this opportunity is here. We have to take it on. Uh, so I, I think that whole body of work has a lot to offer it. But another book, since we've talked a lot about who, that I uh, ask everybody to read, it's research-based, it's called First Break All the Rules by Marcus Buckingham. And that book takes uh, a lot of the mystery out of first who, not all of it, but it does put talent on the, the center stage. Right, it talks about the clues to talent and fast learning, taking unscripted actions that are dead on performance, right? Intrinsic joy in a job, right? There's a lot of real clues to talent that if we wanna get who right, we have to learn what those clues are and then how do you interview for talent? There's a, all the teams that I built read that book and they memorize page 57. And we would have conversations like, hey, page 57, and right in the smack in the middle of page 57, it's that the greatest managers understand that people don't change that much, right? When it comes to their talent and their character, right? You're not going to change that. So this idea of miscasting, you know, your best opportunity is to bring out the best of what's inside a person and not work on fixing people. So this idea that you're gonna sit me down every year and have my development plan and say, Dave, let's talk about your strengths and your weaknesses, and then we're going to focus on your weaknesses. If it's a knowledge skill gap, then that's productive if you're leveraging my talents. But if you pointed out a weakness of mine that's talent-based, we're all going to get frustrated. And that, that's, that comes out very, very clearly in First Break All the Rules. So there's a lot to that. So I, I highly recommend that one if you're going to add one to the quiver. I will definitely add that on, and I actually read that book. I will. I agree. That's. Uh, I, I think I need to reread it because it's some years ago. But that's probably one of the books that gives you a bit of a roadmap to how to get started with uh, first who, then what. Um, how do you show up pro? I call it every day, especially in this time we've been in, and you're advising clients. How do you find you know the magic power to be in the impact zone? What is your trick? Uh, you know, I would tell you it's it really flows more from sort of a mindset that I've had my whole life, which is I'm the kind of person that 
if something's viewed as important but impossible, I'm the kind of person that wants to run and get first in line, right? I, I, I really think too many times we hold ourselves back from deeming something as impossible just because it's difficult. And I've always enjoyed the idea of pressing the envelope and wanting to do something that people see as impossible, but is very, very important. And that's why I'm on this mission. The idea of, you know, raising the level of, of leadership kind of across the board or making Collins work more mainstream and actionable, you know, it can feel like Don Quixote, right? That's a silly dream. It's, it's such a big, hairy, audacious goal. And it's like, you know, I want to do that. And if I only impact one or two people or one or two organizations, I gave it my best effort. So that's what gets me up in the morning is that, that I really want to keep pursuing this because I think there's a real impact there. Yeah, and it's a, it's a quite a complex beast, as you say, uh, because you're dealing with humans in, in, in your work. Uh, is there any question you wish I've asked you uh, during this conversation and how would you have answered that question? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and uh, the question that I would want you to ask me that you didn't is what did Collins get wrong? Or what do you think needs to be rethought? Because people can look at me and go, oh, you know, Dave's all in and Collins has all the right answers. I, I don't really believe that. I think he surfaced many great principles. But the one that really does bother me is the, the level five pyramid. It's actually where the name level five came from. It's this pyramid that's in the book. You probably recognize it. And it's a, a description of how to go from level one through level five. And it's a lot of what stuff. It's really describing sort of span of control growing from being an individual contributor to the top of an organization. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's all about who they are, not what they know. That's a bunch of what stuff. I, I, of course, the level five name came from the pyramid. But I would tell you that in the impact, and when you start first two, you want to start with chain of command. And the seeds of leadership are personal humility and fierce resolve, right? I want those in a frontline supervisor, right? If you have two or three people working for you on third shift, I want to see, do you have that DNA, that seed of leadership? That's what I consider level five is because that's not changeable. Does somebody have the right level of humility and resolve to be effective at leading people? Will they bring do they appreciate collective success versus their own success? That's that humility. Will they, will they do the difficult work like first two? You need resolve. Will they tackle brutal facts, right? I, I think that's the who they are is way more important than what that pyramid, it, it describes a bunch of what stuff, not a, not a bunch of who stuff. So that's the, the way I would, would answer it. And uh, I hope Jim doesn't take offense to that, but it's, it is a little bone that I would pick with him is, I think he got so much of it right, but that pyramid, it just seems like it, it got slapped together and put in the book. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I actually agree with you because actually we took humility and uh, how people deal with success and how they share it uh, as the key traits we were looking for as well. So we uh, we'll just looked for the top of the pyramid. We didn't care about all the other things because they were more functional skills when I was trying to work and implement. I'll be right because people thought it was something that you're, you know, so I'm a level three now, so now I need to work to level four. No, no, that's not how it works. It's uh, so because people think about pyramids in this way, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs in a way. Uh, uh, so yeah, I agree. That was a very good, very good question and a very good answer. 
what is uh, your top three advice to to leaders out there? You you have the uh, the audience now. What should they do to go and I think they all are looking now in a in a you know almost post pandemic world. How can we really achieve the the top potential in our organization? Well, I would tell you I've got to start with the who point first, and that is to really get your head around the idea that you cannot grow gracefully unless you have the ability. You can't grow any faster and be graceful in your growth then you can attract and assimilate the right people. So all this unprecedented demand, right, is putting pressure on organizations. And I understand it's difficult to get talent. Everybody says it's almost impossible to get enough of the right talent. I advise people that just don't confuse the difficulty of doing something with the necessity to do it. That just means this is the Mount Everest of who right now, of first who. So you've got to get that much better at getting the right people and assimilating them so that you can go after the growth and have everybody continue to win and have a great company at the end of it, not reach this tipping point. So that would be the very first thing that I would advise folks. So the second piece of advice I would have for a leader is that they should get right with the relationship with the window in the mirror. And what I mean by that, if you've read the book, I'll refresh your memory. Uh, the level five leaders, when things went wrong, they looked in the mirror. And when things went right, they looked out the window to attribute uh, the success to, to others. And I, I hear so many leaders that are frustrated by the kind of culture, by the things that are going on in their organization. And that's looking out the window all too often. And I would tell you that if you're unsatisfied with the performance or the culture or the sense of urgency that you have, then the, the right relationship with the mirror says, how am I leading in a way that's allowing that to persist? Or maybe I'm leading in a way that that's an unintended consequence. Maybe I'm doing some things that have unintended consequences that set this sort of thing in motion. But uh, the right kind of leader is going to get really clear and go, I need to look in that mirror first before I start looking for who to blame. In fact, you really never look out to who to blame unless there's something you know really, really obvious taking place. But then you own that. You own performance managing people, right? Don't don't let that hang around. The third piece of advice that I would have is one I counsel leaders all the time is that you need to actively spend as much time cultivating trust as you do on revenue, EBIT, and cash. And we hadn't talked about the role of trust very much, and it's not in any of Collins' work. But when you hear this cultural flywheel, the WD-40 for a flywheel business is the level of trust. General uh, Stanley McChrystal says organizations, operations move at the speed of trust, and that's true. So I advise leaders that if you don't know whether you have enough trust, trust me, you don't, right? You need to actively put into play the kinds of things that develops deep levels of trust from top to bottom in your organization. It gets rid of all the silos, and uh, the, the, the silence that can cripple an organization. So trust is the most defining quality of whether or not you're going to succeed and live up to your potential. Great, great, Dave. That was a great advice there. And then you're finishing off with a, a, a really tough one because it's an untangible one, but it's one of those things that you really need to get your head around, especially in these times where everything in our life is up in the air. Uh, both at work and 
outside work. You know, the, the companies that will move first have a lot of this WD-40 trust spray in their in their cocks and they're just going to move faster than the others because uh, they've already spent years and years on building this trust factor. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's definitely something often also we maybe shy away from as leaders because it's so untangible and we think at some point we reach trust. No, no, you just reach a certain level of trust. You can never have too much because it's going to be difficult periods where you need all this extra on the books to to check it out and balance the books as things get difficult in an organization. A change needs to happen. So I thought really, really great advice. Where, where can people uh, find out more about you and the work you do uh, online, Dave? Yeah, so uh, my biggest presence is my LinkedIn profile, and I'm the owner of the Good to Great discussion group on LinkedIn. And so that's the easiest place to find me and to see sort of samples of my con- content. I, I put a lot of it out there to try to make these principles come to life and be, have a sort of a practical bent to them. Uh, but of course, if uh, any of your followers, they, they all know you and you and I are well connected. So that's a, another path if they want to learn more about me is to, to reach out to you. But uh, you can find me most directly on LinkedIn. All my contact information is there. Uh, I jump on Zooms with people who just want to learn more uh, or just want to discuss some element of leadership. So I'm, I'm pretty accessible in that regard because this is obviously a, a a passion it's what i put center stage in my my career going forward great day we will throw it all in the uh, in the show notes as well so people can can find you on linkedin thank you so much for for coming on the show dave and and sharing your thoughts on uh, getting the right people on the bus and uh, the wrong people off the bus all right thank you michael thanks for having me thank you so much Dave for sharing your incredible insights and knowledge about leadership and setting the right team. I will recommend you now to ask yourself, what percentage of my key seats do I have filled with the right people? To get further inspiration on how to improve your team leadership, tune in to episode number 11, creating a grand hotel experience with Andrew Mosley, general manager of the Grand Brighton. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels. A big thank you to BeSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. Check them out at BeSimply.com or via their social at BeSimply or BeSimplyHQ. You can also email them directly on advice at BeSimply.com. A big thank you to Fina Charlton, who's the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview. In the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the newsletter and download free leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com. And don't worry, if you didn't get all of this, there will be links in the show notes. I'm Michael Tingser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be maverick.